the releases will be on will be on Bandcamp, but it's, I'm mostly trying to direct people to buy it directly through the Grayfade shop. So that, and I'm focusing really on the idea that you can have high resolution downloads there. I mean, technically you can do that on Bandcamp too, but it becomes fairly cumbersome. Um, so I'm yeah offering that directly through the website, and that's kind of a very important thing that I kind of decided on early on when I came up with this label idea is that I didn't really want it to be on any of the releases to be on streaming services. Um, and I wanted to focus on the highest quality audio that I possibly could muster and, and focus on this kind of more private interaction between the listener and the artist. Um, I just feel like a lot of the streaming services these days have kind of taken away that private experience between listener and artist and, uh, vinyl in a way has served that function but it's not really the only way that that kind of transaction can happen so i'm trying to find a, a digital counterpart to that form of private experience and uh i just feel like the streaming services are not just philosophically aside from the economics of it and all that which has been talked to death but just i'm just philosophically not really interested in what those platforms are offering i really want I think music is made to be listened to carefully and critically and privately away from the the public square and the, the internet and advertising. And I think that that's like really crucial for perceiving uh, art in the in it the way it was uh, intended. And I just think those streaming services, if you try to think of like what would be the analog of a streaming service for like a fine art gallery or something, it's just it's just ludicrous, you know, that an artist would ever a fine artist would ever submit themselves to those kind of constraints of just kind of ubiquity and uh, disposability and, you know, and, and non-focused experience or whatever. So to me, yeah, I mean, I think doing a direct-to-fan thing through the website was the best way I could come up with, and it's nothing particularly original, but it's the best response I have to the current kind of climate out there. Yeah, I mean, what is the equivalent? Like uh, the Whitney Museum's Instagram page or something? You know, like, let me look at thumbnails of pieces of art. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Maybe that's right. I mean, you know, I don't I don't necessarily have any problem with Instagram or any of these social media media per se. What I have a problem with is trying to shoehorn like work that wasn't designed for those media into those media. And I, I think that if you want to use Instagram or YouTube or whatever as you know, as they are and, and, and utilize them and create work specifically for those media, then I think that's very valuable. And, and I've tried to do that as much as I can in a way that feels you know healthy to me but yeah once you start getting to the point when you're making works that are meant to be experienced in a certain way and, and then now you're giving them away to these services and the context is getting completely stripped uh, i don't to me that was kind of going a little too far so i don't know it's it's a personal decision that i guess every artist has to make and i've had a lot of people tell me that i might be mis it might be misguided but that's kind of where i'm standing on it right now I can't be on the record saying anything about this. What's that sound? Hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? The proposition sounds intriguing. Proposition sounds very attractive. I tell you, it's a thoroughly sound proposition. Seems a sound proposition what brought you here. My name is Joseph Bransifort. Um, I live in New York, a little north of New York City. And um, my background is as a performer, composer, improviser, and uh, record producer and recording engineer here in New York. Uh, my day job is engineering records. I have a studio in Brooklyn where I produce and engineer mix records. And then I'm starting my own record label this year, which has been a uh, the big project for this year and releasing a couple records in the first year so
I've been thinking about doing a label now for, you know, four or five years. It's really been something that's always on the back of my mind. I kind of do a lot of different things. I've always been trying to find some mechanism under which all these different pursuits can kind of come together under some unified umbrella. So the label's been something that's kicking around, you know, for a couple of years. And I've not lacked the motivation. I've just kind of lacked the time. And so this year I finally kind of put my foot down. I was like, I'm just going to do it. Well, it was more, more like last year, 2018, when I started. And so um, it is a little bit of a crazy thing to start something like that these days. I mean, I know the financial incentives are not really there. Not that they ever really were, but even less so it seems than they ever had been. And I don't really look at it as really a financially motivated venture in any way. It's really more, as I see it, a kind of a compositional decision. I think of it as almost a larger kind of form of composition, working with elements that are maybe outside the normal things that composers work with, but I almost kind of see it that way, that it's this curatorial compositional device that can allow some context over the individual sound works and uh, recordings and stuff that I'm doing and, and give me a little more control over how things are uh, released and produced and kind of you know, written about. So it just kind of gives a, a little more context to the stuff I've been doing. Um, and it, like I said, it combines a lot of areas that I'm, I was already interested in from kind of algorithmic side of things and the programming side to the performing, improvising, recording and producing, and then also been getting into graphic design and doing, you know, press releases and stuff like that and maybe some more writing in the future so i think it's kind of just combined stuff i was naturally interested in and i don't really think too much about whether or not it's relevant it's just something i've been wanting to do for a while For sure, the art and the packaging is something that I'm concerned with. And I think I'll, since this is my first go with that, I, I still have a lot to learn and a lot of room for growth there. But I definitely have a distinct idea of how I want that to be done and still working towards that. But also, you know, everything from website and um, written materials to the way I want to um, put together concerts, even being able to put something together like that, that gives me this kind of umbrella under which to put different uh, composers and electronic musicians. Um, I think that that all has an effect on the way the music is heard. I, I don't think that the sound itself is necessarily just isolated from those other variables. So the way I look at it is that everything is relevant from the minute the idea is conceived or executed to when it's uh, perceived by the listener like and everything in between like all those part all those are elements are part of the experience so they should all be considered and i guess to me the label allows me to, to do that a little more actively our label launch concert this Friday at Friedman Gallery. It's in uh, the Bowery. It's a sort of interesting uh, way that we're setting it up. It's going to be focused on spatial sound. So um, we have a friend of mine, Daniel Neumann, who's a great uh, sound engineer here in New York who sets up a lot of sound systems and uh, specializes in multi-channel audio, is setting up a kind of site-specific, uh, what we're calling double quad system. So it's really going to be two separate quad speaker configurations. Um, and within those parameters, we kind of have three distinct uh, performative contexts. There'll be, an, there'll be an installation from a Vermont-based musician named Greg Davis. And he's doing something, a piece of his called Primes, which is sort of a generative composition that uses prime number sequences uh, in a kind of harmonic 
fashion, uh, kind of a long form procedural sort of piece. And that'll be, you know, done in eight channels. And then Kenneth Kirshner, who you might know through the 12K label, um, another friend of mine and kind of a founding member in some ways of this label. He's helped me with a lot of questions and just conceptual framework for things, but he's going to be presenting a, a fixed electronic piece for what he's calling digital choir, which is basically a sort of algorithmic digitally composed piece that he made using uh, choir samples, micro microtonally tuned choir samples. Uh, and then the, the evening will conclude with Theo and I um, doing an improvised set with Daniel, the sound engineer, doing live diff diffusion. Um, yeah, so that's been been pretty interesting to rehearse with live diffusion. Not something I've done before, but uh, kind of an interesting technique. I think that was de derived from like a, a French, the French school of diffusion, where you take two stereo pair or you know a stereo pair or something less than the number of channels and it's actually done live diffused into the multi-channel environment by an engineer So I've known Theo now for maybe about five or six years. We met working on a record called Hydra, which is by this guitarist, Ben Monder, who's a primarily known as a jazz guitarist in New York. And he made this kind of epic record that took about three years to make. And Theo and I met working on that in 2012 or 2013. And we stayed in touch a little bit, but uh, we hadn't really ever performed together. Although I, I was always a big fan of Theo's work uh, since I was a kid. And, um, and then later, Theo kind of found this online journal that I'd been doing, a kind of sound journal where I'd been posting every day or a few days, I'd post a new kind of audio clip of some sonic experiments I was doing, mainly based around the Fender Rhodes and extended with pedals and stuff like that. And uh, through that, Theo found me and uh, basically invited me to do some playing. So we played a couple times in 2017. and. 2018 and then in, in 18 we were invited to play with uh Ryuichi Sakamoto here in New York and so leading up to that we had never really um gotten together uh without a performance basically we hadn't we hadn't really done anything other than just get up and improvise in public three or four times so before this performance I kind of thought well it'd be nice to actually develop something a little bit more you know, in private before we go on stage. Um, and in the process, I decided to just re record the rehearsal session. So we had two days last year where we just essentially explored new sounds, got together and just had fun. And I just let the recorders roll for two days. And yeah, so the record more or less comes from those two day sessions. Um, and it was, yeah, 100% improvised, not really a lot of discussion or any discussion really. And um, from there, I kind of took the recordings and edited them down into something that is has a little more of an album flow to it. And I added a couple more elements or removed elements as needed, but it's, I would say, about 80% just what we did on those live, uh, the, the improvised sessions.
people love show tunes and avant-garde music. Fewer still can perform both well. But today's guest, Theo Blackman, is full of vocal surprises. He's been a part of the New York downtown music scene for more than 15 years. He's performed with Meredith Monk, John Zorn, Laurie Anderson, and the Bang on a Can All-Stars. He's been a soloist with the Estonian Radio Choir, Merce Cunningham Dance Company, and the Mark Morris Dance Group. You know, I would say I'm playing electronics and some synthesizers and uh, oftentimes the roads if I feel like bringing it out because it t- it's a little bit annoying to lug it around. So I either I either have the roads or some variation on that. Um, but most most of what I'm doing is based around kind of this asynchronous looping uh, software that I wrote in both P- Pure Data and Max MSP. I first wrote it in Pure Data, and it runs on this Curter and Guitari Organelle box, which is sort of a hardware device where you can load your own software program. So I kind of wrote this program that allows me to loop whatever sound sources I have asynchronously so you can have multiple four to eight loops kind of each looping on their own time. So it kind of creates these large-scale polyrhythms that kind of keep things very interesting and fluid while working with a limited amount of material. So... I would say that is, in a way, the compositionally generating principle. Theo's really doing the same thing. He has his voice and maybe a digital delay or something as effects and maybe a reverb, but it's mostly based around voice and looping. So for me, yeah, my input sources are synths, roads, contact mics, um, some modular processing, some pedal, guitar pedal processing, um, and it kind of changes day by day. Now, in these upcoming shows, I'm actually doing an all-max MSP setup with just uh, MIDI controllers. So it does kind of vary from date to date, depending on what I've been interested in or what gear I'm kind of geeking out on at that particular moment. But it, it typically revolves around some of those things I mentioned.
I mean, in a perfunctory way, they're different things and you have to focus on them differently at different stages during the process. But uh, I look at them all as part of a organically related whole. And I've never really understood why there's such a division between the concept of engineering or recording and performing and composition and editing. I mean, to me, editing is a form of composing and engineering is a form of arranging. Um, you know, when you equalize a sound, you're, you're, you're performing the function of an arranger. Same way you think of overtones and instruments. Uh, that's the same way that I think of sculpting an instrument with an EQ. So those are the same exact thing. I don't, the, the fact that they're considered different things, I think is just based on this sort of atomization of knowledge tendency that we have in our culture. So uh, I've never, I guess the reason I'm interested in so many things is because I do see them as all part of the, the, the same project. Um, and as far as like you, you were asking about the editing of the recording, I, I do see that, yeah, as a composer-like function. Um, and I actually am somewhat scared when I hear that an, a, um, a recording was improvised I don't know why. Maybe I just don't believe in improvisation as much as I, I could. But I always think that that just means that there's like a, some laziness involved, that, that there wasn't... Uh, I come from more of a composer background, and I, I kind of want some real rigor as far as what the materials are that are being presented. And I guess, to me, the editing stage is something that I spend equally as much time as composing. I mean, I really... We, we recorded, you know, maybe six hours of material, and I probably spent eight months like not every day but like you know maybe every other day working on it like editing it so i take it really seriously as part of the composition and the way the album flows and um the order that things are presented and what's what is presented and what isn't presented and you know if a piece is 15 minutes long and i want to try to find the seven minutes or three minutes that I can cut. You know, I, I just want to get rid of everything but the most essential stuff. So um, the editing is a really important stage, was a really important stage in this record. And I guess I would imagine if in any Im improvised type setting, it probably will remain an important parameter for me going forward. I basically, I grew up in a town in, in New Jersey where there was a lot of musicians uh, growing up, and uh, my family wasn't really musical, but I kind of got into it through friends and got deep into it pretty quickly. By the time I was in high school, I was flirting with doing the music thing professionally, you know, but I kind of didn't uh, for a number of reasons. And I went to University of Chicago to study philosophy. And uh, when I got there, basically, I kind of immediately realized that it was the wrong decision. I needed to continue doing music. But at the same time, I somehow enrolled in this class there called Computer Music, which was about, it was a graduate seminar in Max MSP and other software-related compositional platforms. I didn't know anything about that, but I somehow talked my way into this class. And it kind of changed my life in a way. I mean, I, I definitely changed my immediate life because I dropped out of that school and ended up going to Berkeley. I wanted to find a place where I could study those things as an undergraduate, and there weren't that many. Um, but also Berkeley was cool because in addition to doing that, I was really interested in jazz and drums and performing and recording and all this stuff, and they had all that there. Um, so I was able to kind of keep studying piano and composition and all that stuff, but also have this focus on the software programming and the algorithmic composing and stuff like that. So it was really good, good few years there. And then uh, I came back to New York and kind of got interested in the engineering stuff. I guess it, I had always been interested in it for my own music and had engineered a bunch of my own recordings kind of in a makeshift way. But when I came back to New York after college, I kind of just realized like I need a gig, you know, and 
um, <laughs> I kind of developed it in a, a not not very direct way because I guess the normal professional path would be to go intern at some studio, but I didn't really do that. I kind of just started um, buying some gear and calling musicians that I liked and asking if I could go and record their gigs and just practicing that way. So, you know, gradually I met people in New York and I started getting smaller, small jobs to come out and record live shows. And then, you know, maybe I would get to mix that. And that kind of went on for three or four years before I could kind of have a more steady time of it. And then, you know, now I'm pretty busy with it. I wouldn't, you know, it's basically my, it is my full-time gig, um, but it's taken like 10 years to kind of get to that point where I have the work and the client base and everything and I'm actually working on stuff I like so that's kind of the challenge there too is that in the beginning I also took a lot of jobs of stuff that I wasn't as into and now I feel like it's more mostly music that I'm really psyched about working on so it's it's worked out well and it's it does give insight into composing and all the other creative stuff I'm doing being you know in interaction with all these different uh, musicians and composers and stuff all the time. I've been fortunate to work with some cool people, but again, it, a lot of it really did center on my own musical interest and just the people I reached out to in the beginning kind of led to this web of connections. So yeah, a lot of the stuff I've been working on now is kind of the result of some of those early emails that I sent to people. Um, so it's cool. It's, it's, it's gratifying to have it come to fruition, but, um, you know, yeah, New York, New York, it's a mixed blessing being in interaction with so many people. Sometimes I feel like I need to get away and have some mental space and I'm listening to so much music for my job that sometimes it's, you can kind of burn out a little bit so I, I have to build in some kind of mental space for my own work too because I'm, I'm the kind of person that if I'm if I have too much interaction it sometimes can be a, it doesn't really help my creativity it, it kind of zaps me a little bit so it's trying to find that balance is always tricky still to this day I think of myself as somewhat like a solitary kind of person as far as my own music and a lot of those records you just cited or whatever definitely involved a lot of me just being alone and working on it by myself um but i guess um i don't you know i, I definitely have solo records that i want to make i think it's just a matter of some it's somehow easier to make those collaborative ones because you kind of have another person that's sort of pushing you to finish something or, or at least asking you about how it's going <laughs> whereas with solo stuff it's easy for me to dilly dally and not release anything so um i think it's it might say something about me that i haven't put out a solo thing yet but uh, i definitely intend to so hopefully i can correct that soon <laughs> next one after that will be this project with Kenneth Kirshner and I and something that we kind of developed in tandem together we were both kind of interested in 
algorithmic com- composition, but also really interested in acoustic uh, instruments. We kind of had both hit this ro- roadblock or, or just wall where we were, we really liked the kind of uh, process of working in non-linear ways for, as composers, but we, were, we didn't want to work with like VST instruments. So we kind of started this project together informally a couple years ago where we kind of were sharing work with each other and brainstorming on ways that we could kind of keep this algorithmic process going, but also use acoustic instruments. So the second record will be kind of the results of those experiments. Um, one piece, it's basically two long form pieces. One piece is one of Ken's that was originally an electronic piece that he kind of wrote in 2014, I believe. And I took that and transcribed it for piano and two cellos. It was challenging because he didn't, working as a electronic composer, he wasn't really dealing with metric space or, or a grid in any way. So when I had to transcribe it, it was sort of a difficult process of trying to apply an arbitrary grid to something that was like, by its very nature, not gridded. Um, and it ended up being very rhythmically complex to notate what he was actually intending without it just being a total mindfuck for the performers, which it still probably was. But um, so that was one piece, one kind of method of doing it. And then the second one was one that I, a piece of mine, the string quartet that we just recorded that was um, kind of this, another procedural piece where I took a, a pitch class set, a cluster of, a chromatic cluster of four notes, and I explored every single harmonic permutation of those four notes that's playable by a string quartet and uh, kind of just put that together in software and then rendered it as a score, a fixed score. So that'll be the second piece on that record. And then the um, the next record after that is something I alluded to before by Greg Davis, the electronic musician from Vermont. He had a record called Primes, which is out there if, if anyone wants to check that out. It's a great record that he did with... Uh, sign tones using these prime number sequences and so when i was conceiving this label i kind of thought wow that's that kind of piece is sort of the thing that i want to do with this label like that's kind of a flagship sort of thing that i'd like to have included but it had already been released so i emailed him i didn't really know greg all that well but i just said i love your i love that piece would you be interested in doing like kind of a reboot of that for the label and, and he he's going to do kind of an updated version of that so really psyched about that as well so those are kind of the first three and then after that it's sort of up in the air but still kind of formulating that should take us well into next year The writing I've done probably falls into two categories. More theoretical writing about some of the stuff I'm doing compositionally, and then um, interviews more or less with other people. And so I would say the latter category, I kind of look at those as almost like graduate school. I just if I could take a seminar with someone, who would it be? And I, I tried to find some people that I wanted to learn something from and interview them. So it's really just like a very cheap way to like learn learn stuff that I want to learn. Um, uh, and the actual writing of the article is for me less enjoyable than just having the encounter with the person. But, but I mean, you have to turn something in, I guess. So, uh, that's, that, that's that. Yeah. That's that. But, but I mean, you know, it's something I would recommend to people, musicians and artists, because it's a way of not only learning, but also meeting people on a more direct 
level and maybe it turns into friendships as it has with me with a number of people I've interviewed. And so I think that's really valuable, has been very valuable for me. And then the other category, like, you know, more theoretical writings about some of the stuff I've done with um, live notation and network notation and software design and algorithmic composition. Uh, I think that stuff has also been very helpful. Like, like you said, um, it's sometimes helpful to have, try to place your work in another medium and look at it from another angle. And when you write about stuff, sometimes it helps you see it in a new light. And sometimes it even helps you push further than you would have compositionally had you not written it. So I, I can think of a couple examples of that where I was writing an article about some techniques that I was exploring and in writing the article and trying to think about it very rigorously, I actually discovered that I hadn't really thought about it properly before and um, discovered something completely new just through the process of writing. So I think it's helpful to just have that kind of critical perspective. And when you're going to release a piece of writing, it, I think you have to kind of think through your assumptions a little bit more directly and, and confront some of the, the bias that you have. Um, and sometimes that unlocks a lot of interesting possibilities that you might not have otherwise found. I didn't actually study engineering technically. I, I studied in a music technology program that was called Music Synthesis. It was more centered on computer music and uh, Max MSP. But, so I didn't, I've never really studied engineering formally. For a while there, it was kind of a love-hate relationship as I got deeper into it. I would ca characterize the arc of my relationship with Max as, in the beginning, I, I saw it as just pure possibility. It was just... I just could not wrap my head around how powerful it was and, and that the way it, it uh, what it what it could mean for music just kind of just blew my mind immediately. Like I kind of realized all the potential of it as soon as I started getting into it as like an 18 year old. I just knew that this is something extremely powerful and could really change the way music is made. And I don't think I've gotten there yet at all. I think I'm still on, on you know, that's still unfolding. but. Part of the problem with that is when you're in that realm of like complete pure possibility, it actually becomes, you can get stuck there and not make anything musically and just get stuck in a realm of pure theory and pure experimentation without any output. And so I would say that definitely happened to me. Yeah, I've heard that from so many people. It's totally paralyzing. Yeah, it got to a point where I was making these gigantic patches that I thought would just be the, the, the patch to rule them all, you know, and it could do every single thing I could ever want. And um, you just have to, like, I think the proper, the way I've found to use Max now is to just get rid of that illusion, just to, and I, part of it is the the expenditure of, and of effort that I put in in the beginning allows me now to, it really does feel like just a language that I'm very comfortable with, so... Um, if I have an idea, more or less, I can, any idea, more or less, I can just kind of sketch it within like an hour. There's not like really very many things I could think about doing that are going to take longer than like a day, but that's because I know it really, really well. And I've used it for many years, but in the beginning, a lot of it is just like, you have to really struggle with the language itself. Um, but now that that's over, I think it's just, it feels very fluid to me. 
But the way I'm using it now is almost in a modular kind of way, just having it perform very specific functions. Um, you know, I'm going to make a module that's just a sine wave generator that, you know, that can just stack harmony in a very specific way, or I'm going to make a little module that just outputs impulses or something, you know, it's just, I kind of use it in a much less grandiose kind of way. It's just, it's very simple and just fills in things that I need to make quickly and, and use it for. Um, but maybe I should also say that um, in the composing, uh, when I'm using it for performance, it's more the, the, what I was just talking about, but for the composing stuff, um, I do get a little more granular and deep with it. And um, I still feel that the its ability to compute things compositionally that would take me weeks to do manually is just a very powerful time-saving device. And it kind of allows this feedback loop as a composer where you can quickly prototype a compositional idea like a harmonic progression or something that, that might, if you were to write it out with pen and paper or put it in notation software, it would take like hours to do but in max you can kind of just give it a few lines of code and tell it tell it how to sort things or certain voice leading rules and and just tell it to kind of print you know a thousand chords in a row and and you can you know bounce that and go in your car and listen to that and decide what what you like about it and what you don't so it's it's kind of a time saver and it just kind of uh allows this feedback process in the composite in composition that maybe wasn't ever possible before but i still am wary of it those, when I get those ideas that just seem too big and too good, then I kind of try to abandon them and scale them down to something that's, okay, I'm going to make a patch that's one piece. You know, I'm not trying to make a patch that does everything. It's going to, I'm going to make one piece with this patch or something like that, or I'm going to make a patch for one performance. So that's kind of the way I set limitations on it, I think, because otherwise you can just go crazy. device that runs PD it's just like there's a couple knobs there's there's audio inputs and outputs that are already physically there and um, yeah but one thing I found with that I should say that's really helpful for me with Max is I've gotten like I said I've kind of gotten to the point with the patching now where I don't need to experiment like I know which objects do what and I can kind of like brainstorm it so what I've tried to do is I, I actually write patches in a notebook like I'll just I'll literally like think of an idea that I want to do and I'll just pen and paper just kind of write out write out the whole patch like before even going into max and i think that helps me not explore every possibility it helps it helps like with that top down thing of like what am i trying to accomplish i'm going to write it out in one sentence or two sentences what it is that i want what are the features and then i'm going to design it so it's almost like i think of maybe i do think kind of like a hardware designer in the sense of like what's the objective what does it need to do what are the inputs what are the outputs and then, like, once I can clearly define what that is, then it's so easy to make it. But I feel like in the beginning, my the, the handicap was you you have to, like, start futzing around with Max to even know what's possible. You know what I mean? So it's this kind of, like, iterative process where first you're using Max to know what Max does. And now I kind of know what it does already. So I can, in my head, I can just think of the idea and then I know how to make it. So it's it's simpler now. But I think that... I don't know that there's any shortcuts. I think you, a lot of people it, I've talked to go through that same process of kind of getting disillusioned with it because it just becomes, it kind of slows their musical productivity for a time while they're learning it. But I think if you can like turn that bend and come back to the practical music making point, part of it, then it's still, you know, very, very powerful.
Yeah, that's the way I w- I've never really taught Max, but that's the way I would teach it too. But you know, it's like what what what's the design goal? What is it that you want to build? But I don't even think you can answer that. Like what I'm trying to say is, I don't think you can answer that question always unless you've experimented to a certain degree. Like for me, even even I have mixed feelings about modular and Euro rack, but one thing I get out of it is just seeing how other people design modules gives me ideas for Max. And so like this current performance system I have, I basically try to rebuild like this little make noise synth, this zero coast synth that I've been taking around to performances that I really like the design of it. I just liked the flow of it. I'd gotten used to like performing on it and I just liked the way it was set up. I would have never thought of that exact design, but once I'd seen that design, I was kind of like, oh, I could make this in Max, it's not that hard. And so I did and now I can just kind of, now I have that as like a, a little module in Max. So I think it's just helpful to interact with a lot of different designs and see how other people have done it. Kind of like the same way you learn composition, you need to like study other compositions to just see what are the parameters that, that you can work with. And then once you know that, then I think you can go back and Max becomes really powerful again. Yeah, and that's a depressing reality that I have to take into account as a mastering engineer all the time. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm not. Again, I'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't take those things into consideration. But I also think that I don't think we should be actively promoting them either. Um, like, I'm not making records that are made to be heard on laptop speakers. Like, I've the like the, the LP one, the first record that. I'm putting out like if you listen to that on laptop speakers you're not going to hear like four octaves below like <laughs> on the first track you're just literally missing like half the track so I mean I don't know what that person's experience of the music is going to be but I can't necessarily I mean I, it worries me a little bit but I can't I have to trust that people are going to buy the record then and you know put put the download in a system that sounds pretty good or play the vinyl on a system that has good frequency extension and the room is quiet enough that they can actually hear the dynamic range and stuff like that. I mean, um, there's no guarantees, but again, you, all you can do is kind of talk it up and hope that, you know, those people who haven't caught on to that yet, maybe, maybe think about it a little more. Having a version that you can put on your iPod or, or iPhone or whatever is, is still valid, but I just think just people need to know that that's not the full, that's not the extent of the experience. It's not really how it was designed completely. I, I still think as creators, we need to take it into account, but I don't think that's the totality of what's possible. If you really listen on a good system, you'll hear other stuff that, that you're not going to hear on iPod earbuds.
doesn't hurt me. Do you want to feel how it feels? Do you want to know, know that it doesn't hurt me? Do you want to hear about the deal that I'm making? Make a deal with God, and I get him to swap our places. Be running up that road, be running up that hill, be running up that building. If only I See how deep the bullet lies. Unaware, I'm tearing you asunder. There is thunder in our hearts. Is there so much hate for the ones we love? Tell me we both matter, don't we? I think a lot of this stuff um, is self-evident when you start exploring. Uh-huh. Um, I've done a lot of just recording myself, exploring, seeing what I can do. Let's say I would go through the alphabet. I start with the letter A and I come up with every sound that I can with this, uh, on the vowel A. And then I take the first one and I make three variations on the first one, etc. So it becomes this tree of variations. Show me what you and mean. That, so let's say I have A. Uh, try to get a buzz in there a little bit. <clears throat> then I make a variation on that one. Uh, put a vibrato in it. Or I go uh, 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 to its staccato. Then I do another gravelly ah uh, on maybe on a slide. Uh, Etc. And then I do, you know, other ahs, other sounds with ah that have different variations. So I write them down and meticulously lay it out and see if I can combine them. Um, so that's where the click comes in, where I have, maybe I have a uh, 
etc. You know, it's endless. It's an endless game of just trying to find find sounds and see what you can do. Sort of like a painter changing, their, taking their colors and putting them together, mixing them to different degrees and seeing if this one works next to that one and let's put, you know, more white into that and more this and more that. So it's very simple. But then, and this goes back to Meredith, then the, the hardest part is what does it mean? What is this about? Is this just a, a cool effect or what am I trying to say here? And this is what I'm constantly struggling with and working on is why why this sound why that sound what does it mean to me um, and that's when the work starts to i think to to jam and get more um into a deeper place for me